0: All right, welcome to the Upper Room Bible Study. Tuesday night, and we're doing church in a coffee shop. It's great. It's good to see you guys out here. Uh, As Josh has always said, this is a place for Jesus stuff to go down. What is it, Rob? Nothing more? Nothing less? and Nothing else? Just Jesus? Something like a, a cold glass of water on a hot day? I don't know what verse that is, but I like it. that's just the way Josh does things. He's mystical. So I hope you would receive that. And so as we jump into Mark 12 tonight, as you know, we read every seven chapters. Last week, Aaron took us into an interesting chapter there in Mark with Jesus confronting demons and healing the sick. And he, he brought just a powerful word in the voice of Jesus. When Jesus speaks legions of demons listen and when he speaks the seas calm and when he speaks diseases go away and so what's stopping you from listening to him when he speaks if he can control all these things why don't you listen and Aaron had such a powerful word for us last week in Mark 5 and now we move seven ahead into Mark chapter 12 and the last time that I was up here we we looked at Matthew 26 it was passion week it was the final week before he went to the cross and Coincidentally, we find ourselves again in Passion Week. Mark 12 marks Wednesday, um, three days before he goes to the cross. And so what we're going to see here is a constant attack of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees asking Jesus all these questions Uh, on this long day when he gives long sermons. He's confronted three different times by these different groups of Jews. And it's real easy to read the passage and just think, Why are you asking the one who wrote the scriptures, thinking that you can actually trap him in it? He's the author of them. Why would we actually think we can trap him? Um, But let's not have that mentality, because I did when I was reading through it, and it's the wrong one. I'm thankful that they asked Jesus these things, um, because now when they ask me, I know the answer. He's given it to us. And so what a blessing it is that Jesus has endured so much more than we would ever have to. Um, He has taken it for us. And so that's a great thing. Um, Be reminded of that as we get into this word tonight. So let's go ahead and bow in a word of prayer. Father, it is a great thing to be in your house. On a Tuesday night, we could come and worship you. And Lord, Isaiah wrote that as the grass withers and the flowers fade, uh, your word stands forever. And through suffering and through hard times and Even through the current state of our world now, many things are fading, uh, many things are withering away, Lord. And so we come to you as finite children who need so much help. And we hold fast to your word that will stand forever. We will read this for all of eternity. And so God, as I speak tonight, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in a powerful way that you would meet a thousand different needs in this room that I can't possibly begin to, to understand or to meet myself. That's something that only your spirit and your word can do, Lord. So I, I just pray that I would be faithful to it uh, and that Jesus Christ would be magnified and we would love him even more because of tonight, Lord. Uh, so we thank you for everything that you're doing in our lives and we commit this time of Bible study to you now. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 12. Follow along with me if you're not there. We'll be starting right here in verse 1. It says here, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, also known as harvest time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty handed. Again he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. Again he sent another servant, and they killed him and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vinedressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked there in verse 9 he will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others have you not even read this scripture the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone this was the lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes so chapter 11 ends with a challenge to jesus they challenge his authority and chapter 12 jesus responds not only does he trap them in their own question at the end of 11 but he gives a parable of condemnation to these religious leaders. In this short story, he's able to communicate the entire history of Israel, lays it out in this small parable. And I love the work of Jesus because he's able to communicate such heavy truths in the most simplest form. It's incredible. Chuck Smith said, if you want to be a pastor, you've got to be able to teach five-year-olds. And if you can preach to five-year-olds, then you can preach to a congregation. Because that's how Jesus did it. He was able to Communicate simple and yet complex truths to anybody, whether you were educated or uneducated, the poor person or the rich person that got these things. And so he sums up the entire history of Israel in this small parable. The vineyard here is clearly Israel, it's the children of Israel, and the owner is God. And the vine dressers that are given it are the religious folks of the day. Jesus pins the vine dressers as. The religious leaders, whether they be Pharisees, Sadducees, or scribes, it doesn't matter. That's who he's pinning there. And he says here that the servants would come during harvest time. The Old Testament prophets would come in the name of the Lord. They would come, thus saith the Lord. They would have the word of the Lord for the people. And yet time after time you read through the Old Testament, you see what? They reject the Old Testament prophets. They don't want to hear them. And many times you see a verse over and over. It says, They did not listen to the Lord, for everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so what we see here in these three servants going back and forth, being beaten, stoned, and even killed, is the picture of the Old Testament prophets from the days of old. And so finally, the Lord says, I'm going to send my son, because they're going to respect my son this time. They're going to listen to him. But yet what happens, look there at verse 7. They know that this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. That which is due to Jesus is exactly what the vine dressers want for themselves. The power that is due to him, the glory that is due to him, the offerings, the sacrifices, the things that are coming from the vineyard, from the people of Israel, are due to the Son. He's the heir to all of them. But what do the religious leaders of the day want? They want those things. They want power, they want the glory. They want the prestige and the honor. They want it for themselves. And so they kill him. And so Jesus is able to prophesy his own death, and they know exactly what's happening. Look there at verse nine. He says, "The Father will come or he will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others." What does this mean here? Well, what he's saying that is, after he is killed, what was given to the vine dressers will be taken away from them." salvation. It's not only going to be offered to them, but it's going to be given to others. And who are the others? It's the Gentiles. Salvation was now going to be given to the Gentile people. And so look at Jesus here. He quotes Psalm 118 in verse 10. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. So he's saying the new institution here. We're doing away with the old one and the new one's coming in and it's going to be The church. And so Jesus uses a a simple illustration with a stone. He says there, in those days, stones would be used for structures and buildings, right? And so the foundation had to have a cornerstone. It had to have a good stone to build on or there would be a weak foundation. And so Jesus is calling himself the chief cornerstone. I meet the requirements. I'm appropriate to be the foundation. And I'm going to be the foundation of my church. And my church will be built upon me. And it will be taken from you guys and given to others. And that's what we see here. And look at the response after this parable of condemnation. They sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The parable of condemnation. Jesus brings them truth, and rather than seeing repentance, and these people turning away from their sins, we see more bitterness, we see more hardness of heart. And sadly, this is the reality of what happens when the gospel message is brought to people, is it not? You're either going to see a couple things. Um, by the work of the Spirit, they're going to be showing signs of repentance and wanting to confess Christ as Lord and receive Him, or there's going to be more bitterness, more hardness of heart in which they're going to leave and not return. So Jesus has the final say here. They try to trap him and he gets them. Verse 13, let's get focused again. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I love how when it's time to attack Jesus and when it's time to bully him and try to trap him, the most uninterested and unlikable groups come together and join forces against him. Look at here, the Pharisees and the Herodians, two different types of groups here. One's very religious, very traditional and ceremonial in the things they do. The other, they just care about politics in the Herodians. They were the descendants in the family of Herod. They can care less about religion. They were more concerned in how they looked in the eyes of the people rather than the eyes of God. And yet they're coming together to trap Jesus. It's their time to question him. And so they come to him, look at there at 14, with flattery. Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Interesting, never had they called him teacher. And they said what he was saying was true. And so they're coming in flattery. They're conceiving their real motives with true statements. Have you ever been in person like that? You talk to them? And to conceive the reality of what's going on in their life, they make true statements. It's kind of weird because they're lying and making true statements. It's weird. Let me illustrate it for you. When I was younger, I loved to play basketball. I still play. And uh, I went through this phase where I love to wear high socks. Got to have my high socks on, right? But one problem, I don't own high socks. I used used to rock the ankle ones, right? Right above the ankle, the sock line, it was perfect. That's how I wore them. So when it was time to, you know, play basketball and put on the high socks, I had to go find someone from somebody else. And the only two people in my house that had them were my dad and my brother. That's it. I'm not going to take from my dad. I'm going to take from my little brother. So I'd be rocking his high side. Fredo, those are my socks. Fredo, come on. Those are my socks. What was my answer? Nick, we don't wear the same size. You have smaller feet. Right? I'm making a very true statement, but I'm concealing what the reality of the issue is that I'm wearing his socks. Nick, what are you talking about? But it was obvious what was going on there. But let's take that to another level. So you're a Christian, right? Oh, yeah, I go to church. I own a Bible. I tithe. There's very real issues that are going on, and they're concealing it by making other true statements. Of course you can go to church and own a Bible and tithe. That doesn't make you a Christian. And so their real motives here were not to praise Jesus, not to acknowledge him. They're flattering him, hoping that he's going to not catch on to what they're really trying to do. And we've got to be able to break through this in our conversations with people. No more surface-level talk. How you doing? Good? Great. God is good. Okay, that's right. God is good. But that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going good for you. Sometimes you got to get to the issue of it with these people and be looking to break through this because we can play this game so much. I can play this game really well. Trust me, I can. And it takes a very close group of guys who are willing to call things out all the time in my life and not allow me to weasel in and out of conversations by making true statements while concealing the lie. And that's what we see here them trying to do. Jesus sees right through this. Look at verse 15. Why do you test me? Knowing the hypocrisy said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I might see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to them, Caesar's. Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at this. What an incredible statement by Jesus. Render to Caesar the thing. Give it to him. His inscription's on it. It's interesting, though, that this verse has is, is caused quite a bit of controversy, though, and how Christians should relate to their government. Because many times people think that since I'm a Christian, my allegiance to the government doesn't have to be there. I can rebel, right, in the name of Jesus. But what did Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2? To be praying for your leaders. Be praying for those who are in government and ruling over you, is what Paul told them. Be praying for them be submissive to government render give it to him it's his you acknowledge his authority give it back to him he owns it and that's hard though sometimes because i'll watch fox news and i'll see president obama say things and they just make my stomach turn but at the end of the day i got to be praying for that man cuz he's a lost soul And so Jesus isn't so much glorified in our rebellion to the government as much as he is in our submission to their rule. Paul was pretty clear in Romans 13. Submit to the government, for they're the ones that I have ordained to be over you. And so you're resisting the will of God. And though that may seem strange to think that, how is God completely in control of everything? And he has these people in office. And again, we have got to put faith in God, knowing that He is doing something greater that we can possibly imagine. That He's working things for the good. And at the end of the day, the people who are over us may not be Christians. Their sin may not be forgiven. So before they're a governor, or a senator, or the president, regardless of the ridiculous things that he does, we have got to be praying Because new laws in the Senate that come into the Senate and come into the House, they're not going to change this nation. Jesus coming in to the hearts of men and women is what's going to change the nation. So that's what you've got to be praying for. Stop crying about who's in office and who isn't. And get on your face and be praying. And submit. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Just give it to him. Look at the flip side of that. No pun intended with a coin. But look what he says there. Render to God the things that are God's. If you were there on Sunday, Ravi just made an incredible point here. Now, he quoted this text, and he said the questioner, right, the Pharisee who asked him this should have had a follow-up question after Jesus said, render to God the things that are God's. The Pharisee should have said, what belongs to God? And Jesus would have probably said, whose image is on you? The image of God is on you. Genesis Let us make man in our own image, is what God said there. And so if the image of Caesar is on the coin and it's to be given back, the image of God is on you, and you're to render all that you are to God because of that. But many times this is being challenged. I was in my biomedical ethics class last year as a senior. It's a philosophy slash science class, and we were debating issues on um, biomedical ethics. What's right and what's wrong to do in the hospitals, right? And a great brother of mine, we were in a big auditorium. There had to be like 400 kids there. His name is Shama. Shama, you here tonight? Probably not. Yeah, you don't come to Bible study. Never mind. Shama, he's a sweet brother. He's up in the top, and I'm down at the bottom. And he says, he grabs the mic because the teacher passes around a mic. He opens up his Bible and reads from the Psalms and says that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that I've been created in the image of God. And half the class started laughing at him while the other half started clapping for him. And my TAs who were in there, they they know that I'm a Christian because they taught other classes, so I was just sitting there like, man, this is crazy. To say that God is the one who has fashioned us and who has created us is not the popular thing anymore to say. No longer do people believe that. I was on the streets of Philadelphia witnessing to some kids on a very ghetto street outside this clothing store. There was like seven of them, and we had been talking for about 30 minutes about evolution and some of the issues there and got down to it. Okay, evolution doesn't work. You don't believe God has created you, then what? Where did you come from? What is your reason for existence if not God? And so there are some serious consequences if we give up the belief and the truth that we have been created by God. And the first one is that you can't answer that question. You can't satisfy that question with a good answer. You don't know where you come from. You don't know why you exist if it's not the case that you were created in the image of God. The second thing is that we lose our self-identity if we have not been created in God's image. And let me give you a quote real quick. G.K. Chesterton said this God is like the sun with him you can see everything without him you can't see anything with him you can see everything without him you can't see anything and what he meant by that is that God is the measure of all things God determines what is true God determines what is morally right and morally wrong right he determines beauty he determines meaning and life God is the one who defines all these things And so if we take God out of the equation, who then defines them? We do. Man becomes the measure of all things. So I say what's true and what's not. I say what's morally right and morally wrong. I determine what I think is beautiful. And so if our nation does not begin to recognize that we have been created in God's image, we as man will become the measure of all things. And you already start to see that. Truth is what? Relative. What you think is true is not what I think is true. It's not, it's not the case, right? Morality, strictly up to cultures. What we think here is morally right and wrong may not be what the man in the bush thinks somewhere in some far land. So who begins to define these things? Who defines what love is? Movies? Television shows? Grey's Anatomy? Anatomy? Desperate housewives, do they define what marriage is? Who defines what beauty is? The porn industry? Again, if God is taken out of the equation, man becomes the measure of all things, meaning we define everything. And that is certainly not the case. And so it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal to stand up and say that you've been created in the image of God. And his image is on you, and therefore you render to him all that you are. That's it. Because without that, everything else begins to fall apart. And that's what we see here in this nation. We boast in the fact that we were founded on Christian principles. That's debatable. But now we're living a life in which we say we don't need God. We've advanced so far, and now we've become the measure of all things. And so marriage is a joke, Beauty is whatever you want it to be. Love, it's a one-night stand. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Truth, who knows what truth is. I've sat in philosophy classes day after day debating for hours, and we can't even figure what it? What is truth? Smart geniuses who will be the dumbest people on the last judgment day. They got six, maybe ten PhDs, but when they stand before God, they're going to look like fools because they would not acknowledge what is true. And they would not submit to God and recognize that His image is on them. And so that's huge. Jesus makes that point. The Pharisees try to trap Him. It doesn't work out well. And now that that's over, the Sadducees come at Him. Look what happens here. Verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Him, and they asked Him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, no brother should take, I'm sorry, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. The second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Interestingly, as the opening verse in 18 states, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So here they present this improbable, ridiculous situation, if you will, of a woman, right, being married to a man who has seven different brothers or six different brothers, And none of them could have offspring. So he's saying, the Sadducees at this point who don't believe in the resurrection are trying to make it look foolish, right? Because like, well, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? She's had seven different husbands. What's the case, Jesus? What's going to happen here? And look at his response there in verse 24. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures. You do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Let's stop there. There would be a clearing out of false doctrine and misconceptions in the Christian church if we just knew our Bibles, family. If we just knew the word a little bit better and knew the scriptures, we would save ourselves a lot of time when it came to error. And he's addressing these scribes, or I'm sorry, these Sadducees, who claim to know the word and they don't. He says, if you only, you, no, you do not know the scriptures, right? Nor the power of God. Listen to what he says here. For when they rise from the dead, neither marry, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he gives us a small glimpse of eternity here. At the resurrection, there will be no physical part of our bodies anymore. Strictly spiritual, which is the meaning there of like angels. We'll be purely spiritual beings. In heaven, there will be no craving for food or drink. Though we will eat, there will be no craving for it. There will be no need to sleep. We will not get tired. We will not grow weary in serving our Lord. We will experience the fullness of joy in being God's presence for all of eternity. And our relationship with Christ will be at a maximum. We'll be seeing him there forever. So there will be no physical ailments, there'll be no physical distractions to eternity, or I'm sorry, in eternity with God. There'll be none of that. Marriage, you won't need it. Interesting. You spend your whole life with someone and in heaven you won't need it? Well, what is the picture of marriage? What does it represent? What does it symbolize there? We see there in Ephesians, the husband is to act as Christ, right? And he is to love the church. I'm sorry, Jesus loves the church and the husband is to love his wife as Jesus loves the church. And the wife as well as to submit to the authority of her husband portraying as Jesus. And so when the temporal is done, when that temporal picture is over with and you have the eternal one, you have no more need for the, the picture of marriage because you'll be married at that moment to Jesus. It'll be completely finalized at that point. And this point kind of hits home to me. Because as of late, I've been extremely blessed by the Lord with a God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-reading girlfriend who is gorgeous. And so as of late, we've been thinking about these things, right? What does this mean? What is our relationship um, picture? What does it symbolize? And when you recognize that it's something much heavier than just you getting something out of your partner or you fulfilling that loneliness that you have, that it, that it is the symbol of Jesus and his bride, it completely changes the way you do girlfriend and boyfriend and the way you do things. Because that is now your focus. Your focus is to reflect the relationship that Christ has with his church. That's the goal. And so when that's done, you're with Christ. There's no need for marriage. And that's the point that Jesus is making there. Look at verse 26, the final point here. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You, therefore, are greatly mistaken. So he takes these guys back to Moses on top of the mountain with the burning bush. Take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. And so he goes before there, and God says that I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. I still am. These people still exist. They're still alive. You're greatly mistaken, because the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and what? Deuteronomy, all right, you guys know the Torah. That's all they followed. And so Exodus is in there. This story is in there, and Jesus goes right to it to point it out to them. Hey, you guys should know this. He's the God of the living people. They're still alive. The living God has living followers. And so he disproves this whole notion that there is no resurrection by using Scripture. He points them back. They try to trap him with this bogus analogy. And Jesus goes always back to Scripture. Always back to Scripture is what he's pointing there. Remember that verse. You do not know the Scriptures. And yet we see time and time again in the life of Christ combating things of this world with Scripture. Temptation again with Scripture. Questions like this. Scripture. Hard scenarios. Scripture. The cross. Fulfilling Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. Everything that Jesus does is according to Scripture. The way he looks at the world, the way he answers the world, is with Scripture. And so what we have got to do as Christians is start to think biblically. Start to examine the world through the lens of Scripture. Right? If the Bible were glasses, you should put them on every day and then look at the world and see what it says and start to ask questions. What does the Bible say about the way I eat? or about the movies I watch, or the television shows I watch, or the music I listen to? What does the Bible say about my friends? What does the Bible say about church? What does the Bible say about the way I should drive my car? Those are all very relevant questions you should be asking, for the Bible has answers to them. And so we got to start combating the worldview of the world and of the people of the world with a biblical worldview. Start thinking biblically about the things that you do about the things that you say, about how you live. As you examine the world, put on your glasses and allow the Bible to filter out the nonsense and you can see things the way that God sees things. That's why he's given us his word. And that's the point there. Jesus is a perfect example of that. Let's look at this final question here. The scribes, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment commandment so jesus out of all 613 commandments that we here follow which one is the greatest another trap question which one are we to follow jesus which is the greatest of them all and he says to love your god with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind all your strength but what does that look like to do that we can all agree with that and say, amen, that's it. That's the one commandment. But who here can say that they've loved God perfectly every day? Because if we could eliminate all hundred or 613 laws and just stick with this one, yes, Jesus just gave us one to follow. But who here has kept that the entire life? You see, even if we had none of the Ten Commandments and just this one, we would all fall short of it, right? Paul wrote there in Romans, By the law, no flesh shall be justified. The law reveals sin. And so Jesus is like, I'll give you one. And you still can't follow it. We still fall short of it. Because you can never love God too much. That's for sure. And you can never love God perfectly. And so what does this look like then? It looks like Jesus. To love God with all your mind and all your soul and all your heart and all your strength. It's what Jesus did. And so each and every day we get up and we say, thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling this one. Because I still can't do this one. But you did for me. And I can rejoice in that. And because you did it for me, I can love you more now. Because, family, every day I've got to teach myself how to love God again. Because there are some mornings where there are so many distractions. Loving God is not on my mind. And so when I'm reminded of the cross and I'm reminded of what he has done through the law for me, then the love comes. Then I say, oh, thank you, Jesus, because you have done it for me. And that causes me to love you. He loved us first, right? He first loved us because he loved us. We love him. It took me like 20 seconds to get that verse right right now. I just gave you like four translations of it. He loved us first. I just lost it again. Because he loved us first, we love him. Thank you, Jay. That's why I have Jay back there. But that's it. And so in our day to day life, the things that we do in and out should be an expression of of our love for God, because when you're loving God, the other commandments get met, right? The Ten Commandments started out with the first one, and if that first one gets met, the rest fall in place. There's no need to worry about the other the 613. Just get this one down, and then everything else will start to fall in place, because all of the desires of your heart, the joys of your heart, the passions of your heart are directed in your love for God. You love God with all your mind, Your thoughts, your intellect, that is given over to loving God. Your soul, the very being, everything that makes you up is directed in your love for God. Your strength, your hands, your feet, your physical abilities are played out from day to day as an expression for and in your love for God. Because you love Him, you're going to do this and that. And because you love Him, you won't do this and you won't do that. And so when we look at each other, we can say, I can examine that man's life or that girl's life and know that he loves God by the things that I see him doing from day to day. Because everything that he is is rendered to God, as Jesus said. Everything that he is is focused on loving God. Knowing that you may not always be able to fulfill it, but Jesus did. And so if you're having trouble in loving God more and more every day, think about the cross, be reminded of the cross. Preach it to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Because there came a point in my life where it was really dry. How can I love Jesus more? Well, let's think about it, Alfredo. What has Jesus done? Oh, and then the list just goes on. And at that moment, your love for him skyrockets because he's done so much for you. And you want to love him back and you want to love God with everything that you are, knowing that there is so much that he's done for you. And so Jesus sums it all up in this one commandment, love God. Secondly, verse 31, if that is happening, this one will come as well. The second, like this, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There was no other commandment greater than these. We got two mandates every single day, family. Love God and love people. Do it. Love God and love people and if there is a genuine true love for God because of Christ and in Christ then there will be a natural outflow of your love for people in your forgiveness towards people in your grace towards people knowing that God has forgiven you much more and so your love for them you begin to understand the way that God loves them right so two mandates love God love people Jesus sums it up Just like that. Look at verse 32. The scribe responds now. Well said, teacher. (laughs) Duh. Was he going to give a bad answer? Come on now. Well said. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices finally a scribe gets it he gets it he understands now maybe right it's more than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices this is it all right this is it i got it now good answer god but look at verse 34 now when jesus saw that he had answered wisely he said to him you are not far from the kingdom of god what you're not far from the it looks like he got it god It looked like he answered it correctly. He understands what you're saying. And Jesus says, you're not far. (laughs) One thing you got left to do. And how dangerous is this, though, to Jesus to tell you you're not far from the kingdom? So what's the one thing? Because I think it's the case that you can be very religious and have a great understanding of what a Christian life looks like and not be in the kingdom. And Jesus will tell you, well, you're not far. But if you die being not far from the kingdom, you still die outside the kingdom. And so I think the position of the scribe was much like the rich young ruler. Oh, you've done them all. you got one thing left to do, buddy. Give it all up and follow after me. Couldn't do it. Goes away sorrowful. Nicodemus, you know it very well, but you got one thing to do, buddy. You must be born again. One thing still to do. And so intellectually, we can have a great understanding of what the Christian life looks like. But if these things haven't hit your heart to where you're being transformed by Christ, as Paul wrote there in 2 Corinthians 5, then you may not be in the kingdom. Because this guy said verbatim what every Christian knows. And Jesus says, you're not far. And so this head knowledge must become in the heart. It's got to hit the heart. It's got to start to transform you. The Christian truths that you know must be played out in your lives as seen. And so the questioning is over. The Pharisees have hit him, the Sadducees have hit him, and the scribes have hit him. we got a couple things left. Jesus is now in the temple teaching. And this is pretty tricky here. Look at what he says, verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, Jesus teaching in the temple now, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, is the son of David? Jesus answers his own question here. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And so Jesus kind of poses his own little trick here, his own little puzzle with the scriptures. He says, how are the scribes getting this right, right? The the Christ is the son of David, okay? He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. They got that right. The son of David is the Messiah. He's coming from the line and the lineage of David, King David. Okay, they got that right. But how does this work? Because David himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, So, how does that work? That the Son of David is also called Lord, and the Lord is talking to the Lord. Yet, the Son of David comes after David, and he's calling him his Lord. What's going on here? Because the scribes were right in this sense they were right in that the Son of David would be the Messiah. We all there? We got that right? But what Jesus needed them to understand, that the son of David was also the son of God. He was God in the flesh. He was deity. That's what he needs them to get. For David to call him Lord would mean that the son of David existed before he came into existence. Right? Jesus being there before he even came through the line of David, as far as we know, with the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus existed beforehand. Because in many of the Jews' eyes, they see the Messiah as an earthly king, someone who's going to come and take control and reign now, right? Save now. Hosanna means save now. That's what they wanted. That's what the Jews wanted. They wanted their Messiah now. And Jesus said, oh yeah, the Christ is the Messiah. I'm the Messiah, but I'm also the Son of God. And so my earthly reign just isn't restricted to here. It's a spiritual one as well. And you've got to understand this that the son of David is also the son of God. And so it says there in verse 37, the common people heard him gladly. And so once he gets that out of the way, look at his final warning here. Verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. So, greater condemnation is going to come on these people who are in the temples. They're in the church. And they're dressed in nice long robes. They're making really nice greetings. They have the best seats in all the synagogues and the marketplaces. So, they love themselves. They're lovers of pride and of praise. Look at here, verse 39 or verse 40, who devour widows' houses. What does that mean? It means that they would trick the widows into giving them money, telling them they were doing the work of God. Give to me. Give give to me. Look at me. I'm dressed nice. I say the long prayers. I do the temple thing. You got to give to me because, after all, I'm working for God. And the first thing I think about when I read this passage is the wretched prosperity gospel that is flooding our television screens. The health, wealth, and prosperity. Send in your donation now. They're on TBN, God TV, Praise-a-thon. Me and Ashley were just watching this the other night. Some joke, I'm not even going to say his name getting these people selling, the harvest is ready. It's time to make your pledge to sow your seed of $7 and watch 77 blessings happen for seven years or whatever the nonsense is. But listen, as Jesus said, they were the scribes. They were the ones who were handling the word, copying the word day in and day out. They knew the word very well. And so too goes with the men on TV who can twist scripture all day long and trick people, not only widows, but people who are struggling financially thinking that, Well, I just got to sow my seed and everything's going to happen. I'm going through this tough time, so I better stand up and listen to this preacher because everything he's saying is making me feel good. It's nonsense. And Jesus says greater condemnation is coming on these people. The warning was not only for his disciples as he drew them close, but it's for us today because these guys flood the airwaves. They got big churches and they got big wallets and they got no gospel. No, Jesus. They want to sell you a bell of goods. Jesus becomes a ticket at this point, right? He's the ticket into the theme park. And once you get in the theme park, what do you do with the ticket? Put your gum in it. Throw it away. Put it in your pocket. And when you sit down, you get uncomfortable because your ticket's in your pocket. But that's what Jesus has become for so many people. He's the ticket. He is just the means to some greater end. And for the scribes, their religion, God, everything that He had named to be so sacred, just became a means for their greater end. Just became a means for them to get rich, to look great, to have all the praise of the people. And it's the same thing with this nonsense called prosperity. Makes me sick. Jesus is not just a means to you finding your husband or your wife. He's not just a means to you getting your finances back together or having a great life or your best life now or believing that you can do it on your own. Find the God within you. Jesus is the end. Everything else becomes the mean to Jesus as the end. Yet many people sell him as the means to something else. And many times, sadly, people receive him as that as well. Well, you know, I gotta get, you know, my feet up, so I'll try the Jesus thing. And they have no idea for what and who they receive Jesus as. Well, he's my ticket. He's my <laughs> ticket into the theme park. I'm going in. I'm gonna have fun. And when all those things go away, so too does Jesus. So the warning that he was giving them was very, very clear. Beware of these people. They devour widows, and greater condemnation will come on them, for they know the word, they twist it for their own good. And that's scary. I don't even know how that, how that happens, how someone can know the word. and twi- I mean, it, it's just scary to think what God is going to do with them later on. And the warning is very clear. He's in the temple. He's teaching. Stay away from these type. Let's look at these final verses now. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly i say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of the abundance, out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So two mites could be translated as a daily wage for her. So whatever she makes is given to him. It's given to the temple. That's her offering. The rich people, they gave a lot, but it says there that it was out of their abundance. It was leftover. Well, pfft, I got all this left over. It's not going to affect me. Sure. Take it, Lord. It's yours. But Jesus says, no, look, look here. This is the person who is giving here. Going back to the whole rendering thing, right? Giving all that you are to God. Loving God with every ounce of your being. And in your sacrifices, giving your livelihood. Jesus doesn't need your paycheck, right? Jesus wants us to give his heart, our heart, I'm sorry. Our heart, not our paycheck. He doesn't need that. So in your giving, in your sacrifice, are you giving your heart or are you just giving the abundance? Are you giving the leftovers? Are you giving extra? And even if I say that now, I mean, that, oh, that makes me want to think. What am I giving? Is it from my heart or is it just a couple leftovers? Nothing too big? Jesus says, follow this woman example. She's giving all that she has in her sacrifice. Everything that she is is being rendered to God. She is loving God with all that she is, trusting in his provision, trusting in his providence. That's how she's thinking when she's making her sacrifice. And you know that the one thing that God tells you to test him in is your giving. He says there, see if I don't open up the heavens and bless you. And I honestly feel comfortable talking about it. We're not a church here. I'm not asking for your tithes at all. But think about your giving. Think about your sacrifice. Not only financially, but what you're doing with your career. What you're doing with your schooling. What does your sacrifice look like there? Maybe it's time to take a risk for Jesus and do something crazy. And go be a missionary. How many missionaries are in this room? that have simply been given just the abundance ignoring the call there is a lot to be given to the lord and he's asking for it and he says there see if i don't open up the heavens and pour out blessing after blessing after blessing as a result of what you've given and so let's close the night off with that reflect on our giving reflect on our sacrifice reflect on our love what is it that we're offering to god teaching there at the temple said beware of those men greater condemnation has come on them but let's talk about you what's going on with you what are you giving what does your heart look like in a sacrifice is it really hard to put in that check or that that money or does it just come genuinely and your giving is just outpouring out of the abundance of the heart you're giving and you want to give So think about that. Think about your love for God. What are you rendering to him? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we think about all that you gave us. And Lord, it was not cheap to send your son. Your glory was on full display when he went to the cross, yet it cost you everything. It cost you your son's life. And so we are so thankful for that, Lord, that you have once again been the perfect example for us. When the questions come, when the cornering comes, we know how to deal with it. And you've called us to a life of sacrifice and of giving and of love. Love is the fulfillment of the law, as Romans says. And so, Lord, we want to love you in our giving and in our sacrifice and in our rendering of ourselves to you. Help us to do that. Help us to love Jesus more and more every day and to love people more and more every day. We have not forgotten the sacrifice that you made for us, and we want to give it back to you, Lord. We want to offer ourselves to you with the rest of our lives. Help us to do so. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.